Hello and welcome to episode 1822 of Effectively Wild, a baseball podcast from Fangraphs presented by our Patreon supporters. I am Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer, joined by Meg Rowley of Fangraphs. Hello, Meg. Hello. Well, who had Drew Verhagen in the pool of potential first free agents to sign big league deals post-lockout? I missed that one. He was not my first guess, actually. Yeah, gosh, two years, $5.5 million. Yeah, to the Cardinals. Yeah. It's fun just to have contract terms to talk about again. (laughs) And not minor league contracts, but yeah, not the name I would have expected. Former Tiger and most recently former Nippon Ham fighter, Drew Verhagen. But maybe that'll break the seal and the floodgates will open. But honestly, I'm sort of surprised and impressed at the league's restraint, team's restraint, player's restraint. As we speak here on Friday afternoon, it's been, what, 17 hours or so since the lockout was lifted? And we've got Drew Verhagen? (laughs) I kind of was thinking maybe there would be a deluge of deals. So I don't know whether it is that everyone was really honestly abiding by the rules and regulations and not talking to each other during that whole lockout or whether everyone was afraid to go first (laughs) and out themselves as someone who was doing negotiations that they weren't supposed to be doing. So maybe Drew Verhagen has now given everyone else cover and they can hop on board. But yeah, I'm semi-surprised. I guess that there weren't at least a bunch of trades, let's say, ready to go because you actually could have talked about trades if you wanted to. Yeah, I think that we've learned a couple of things in the last 17 hours, the first of which might be that both AJ Preller and Jerry DePoto have been locked in coat closets (laughs) or um, are perhaps down the bottom of a well, and a well without reception, right? Because Oh, yeah, they could work in a well. Right, simply being down the well does not preclude them from being engaged in activity. (laughs) I think an interesting question for us to contemplate is where in the sequence of phone calls 911 would be for those two guys if they had a deal to get done like would it be the first call that they would make or would they conclude some business before they uh, contacted authorities or like uh, Lassie was it Lassie (laughs) that got people out of Wells anyway DePoto has made deals while hospitalized yeah I guess I shouldn't joke about that part (laughs) but he has done that and so if he were healthy in a well I'm sure he would be working the phones right like maybe he went down there to do some sort of minor repairs and got stuck I'm not envisioning them falling down wells because that you know that would lead to injury and we're not trying to hurt anybody (laughs) we're just imagining a scenario where they like propelled themselves down in the little bucket (laughs) (laughs) anyway it is weird that we haven't gotten a deal i wonder if they're really concerned about tampering although i would i will say that like in the conversations that i have had with ops people like they have been busy doing other stuff. I think that, um, you know, no one wants to put their team in a in a disadvantageous position because they're found to have been breaking the rules. But the lack of trades is kind of surprising. You know, even just like a, I don't want to, I'm not trying to um, denigrate the careers or contributions of relievers, but like a little reliever amuse bouche. Kind mm-hmm. of surprised we haven't gotten one of those. Like, I'm not expecting yeah. either of the Mats to move today or Luis Castillo, although I do kind of expect those guys to be 
on the move in the next little while here. But yeah. yeah. <laughs> I wonder what the lockout was like for A's fans and oh, Reds gosh. fans, let's say, who as long as the lockout was ongoing, they could pretend that yeah. their roster was still going to look the way it does. So it's like, well, as long as they never lift the lockout, maybe we won't trade all our good players. And there were rumors even during the lockout about yeah. discussions that had gone on. But now one of the top stories on MLB trade rumors is Rangers, Yankees resuming pursuit of athletics, Matt Olson. There yep. must have just been an impending dread for fans of those teams more so even than everyone else who was worried right. baseball might not come back for those fans it was like well when it does come back that's gonna be nice but it's also gonna be not nice because right. we might lose a lot of our good players so yeah mixed bag yeah and and if i were one of the players involved i guess you know they they make their peace with the possibility of having to relocate on a moment's notice at someone else's behest in order to pursue the careers that they do i guess that my preference would probably be at least don't make me change states for spring training right mm -hmm. like me stay you know if i'm one of the mats if i'm if i'm matt olson and i'm picking between the two teams that you just listed and of course he doesn't really get a say but i'd be like well yeah rangers let's you know let's get to know one another because then at <laughs> least you're like you're having to drive across the valley for a couple of weeks potentially but it gives you a little bit of time undisrupted to anticipate the major disruption that is coming for you so yeah right. i don't know must be must be a very it's a it's a weird career as we've remarked several times before. We've wondered about the pace of transactions to come in the next few weeks. I know you have wondered particularly as an assigning <laughs> editor, but also I wonder about the prices and how this will affect the actual contracts signed because yeah. I think generally there's been some evidence in the past that teams have historically gotten more war per dollar or whatever metric you want to use when free agents sign later in the off season and right. maybe time pressure starts to build on those free agents because hey the season's going to start for those teams regardless but if the players don't sign somewhere then the season doesn't start for them and so once you <laughs> get antsy and the clock is ticking down and yeah. players are about to report to spring training you say ah oh, well this isn't the deal I wanted but I'll take it and so I wonder now because you have so many free agents still available and spring training has started, right, uh, just about, and mandatory report dates are, are in a few days, but it's uh, begun even now. And so I wonder if there's some FOMO that goes on and just some, hey, opening day is less than a month away. Mm -hmm. And meanwhile, all these other free agents are out there. Do I just have to take the first offer I get just to get back in uniform and not be bumped by some other free agent at that position? So... I wonder, I'm sure this was maybe something that those free agents were talking about during yeah. the last few months, and maybe they talked to each other about it, but I do wonder whether there will be some deal signed for a little less than might have happened otherwise if this had been a, a quote-unquote normal offseason. I hope not, but yeah. we'll see. The other thought that has occurred to me is like, do you 
do you end up seeing more sort of pillow contracts from these guys right. to to sit out and kind of retest the market this coming off season when you're you know you're another year removed from the pandemic you you have another you have a, a full and normal revenue year you don't have the sort of uncertainty of the CBA negotiations clouding things so I I do wonder if we'll see more of that guys who are just like let's let's get a reset and see where we are come come the next year because you know we're gonna have it's not just that you'll have the uncertainty behind you it's not just that you'll have a normal revenue year but you're also gonna have a year where we start to get a sense of like what does it what does it mean to have some of these new revenue streams at the disposal of teams right Mm -hmm. like all of a sudden you're gonna be able to get money from jersey patches as we discussed yesterday we have a better idea of what it's going to bring into the league once we have expanded playoffs but you know it's it's going to take a minute for the economic environment to settle in any number of ways i would imagine Mm -hmm. well there will be a lot to discuss in the coming weeks i'm sure so any day after cba thoughts or reflections from you that we missed out on our immediate reaction episode i'm i'm still feeling the afterglow i'm still riding high here yeah. and just generally in a good mood about the whole thing and averting the worst case scenario but uh don't know whether any other thoughts have occurred to you since we last spoke let's see i don't know i i think that we're going to have a lot more to say once we are like able to really dig in on the actual text of the of the thing mm-hmm. i'm trying to think of things that sort of came came through in the hours after we recorded i know that and this is i don't know that this is actually a result of the well it has cba implications but unvaccinated players aren't going to be able to play in yeah. canada and under the new cba they will not be paid or receive service time for the games that they've missed so mm-hmm. mlb seemingly taking an approach kind of more akin to what uh the nfl did in an in an effort to get guys to vaccinate so that that was a late wrinkle that that sort of arrived yeah so when players who have not been vaccinated go to toronto they'll just be on the restricted list and will not be able to play i think the vaccination rules aren't a problem for the current blue jays shy davidi said but it's something that they've been thinking about in their player moves this offseason as you would think yeah and he mentioned that the rate at the end of the 2021 postseason was about 88% of all tier one individuals were fully vaccinated at that point. That's not just players, right? That's also the the staff, the surrounding staff. But the rates, I'm sure, are quite high at yeah. this point as they have continued climbing in the country as a whole. But you know that there are going to be holdouts and probably some significant holdouts and maybe some holdouts that people would not have known or suspected if they haven't been public about it. So probably throughout the season as teams go to Toronto, we're just going to get a little trickle of, well, this guy's not making that trip. And we're going to learn a lot about certain players' political beliefs possibly, which will be a whole lot of fun. But I guess you could say that Other than the fact that it is probably making and has probably made it harder for the Blue Jays to sign players or trade for players just because this is a a consideration and maybe some players are essentially off limits to them. But besides that, I guess 
it's a competitive benefit to them <laughs> in that right. they may face some somewhat shorthanded teams at times. I don't know whether that's something that we would be able to quantify at the end of the season. I mean, potentially, right? Like if we're able to identify yeah. which players were on the restricted list for games in Toronto and thus were not available for those games and prorate the war that those players produced in other games or something like you could in theory come up with some sort of rough estimate of how much did the Blue Jays benefit yeah. from that I mean be nice if they didn't benefit at all because everyone was fully vaccinated but right. we're living in the actual world so right. <laughs> this will continue to be a story throughout the season I suppose yeah so that struck me as something that we hadn't mentioned on the pod I don't know I I think that I will try to approach my assessment of the CBA the way that I do draft classes, which is that, like you said yesterday, it takes time to see sort of how these things play out. Sometimes there are unintended consequences of aspects of the deal that maybe, you know, today we look at and say, well, that's great. Like that's going to work out well for everyone. Sometimes incentives and loopholes take a while to reveal themselves. Although um, if anyone's going to find one, <laughs> it's going <laughs> to be a major league baseball team. So mm -hmm. I don't know that I I have a lot more. I, I do have sort of an overwhelming sense of relief that yep. we will be able to have a year that is normal. I hope that, you know, in the quiet moments that they have away from reporters that the union feels as if it has accomplished at least some of the goals that it set out to do. Because as you mm -hmm. said yesterday, I think that, you know, when the sport is aligned directionally with the players rather than the owners, we tend to get baseball that we enjoy more, which isn't terribly surprising. I don't think is even like a, per a particularly controversial political statement to make. So I hope that they feel like they, they did what they set out to do, at least in part. So there's that. I mm -hmm. can't believe that like... Our first positional power ranking is going to run on March 28th. That feels very <laughs> soon, Ben. Yeah. Along those lines of fans' interests aligning with players more mm -hmm. closely, I think if there is a disappointment, and again, my overwhelming feeling is one of relief <laughs> and, and pleasure as well, but I guess you could say that one core concern of players and also fans was that there wasn't really a whole lot done to address whatever we're calling it, competitive integrity or tanking as some people call it, although I think that's not quite an apt term at yeah. this point. As we discussed last time, there is this draft pick lottery, which is something that in theory would dissuade old school tanking or tanking as it exists in other sports, but not so much as it exists in baseball. And I uh -huh. don't know how much of a problem this is because as we have discussed, competitive balance has actually been pretty good, you know, relative to other sports leagues yeah. in baseball. And so I don't know that it's at the top of my list of league-wide problems. Now, like, if you're an Orioles fan or if you're a fan of some other terrible team that has not been trying to win for a while, then it's a huge problem for you. I think that there is still a, a decent amount of competitive balance and, and parity or whatever we want to call it are teams that still have a chance. And now that there are 12 playoff teams, that will be even more true. But if anything, the fact that there are more playoff teams and you don't have to get as good to make the playoffs, the player's concern was that that would lead to less spending. And yeah. I don't really want to call it tanking because, again, I, I don't see it as teams intentionally trying to lose so much as teams just sort of 
well, maybe we could call it banking, just like banking, <laughs> banking the dollars yeah. that they're getting without having to compete. Yeah. And banking kind of captures it also because it's just it's <laughs> it turns it into a financial exercise as opposed to a competitive athletic one. Yeah. And that I think is the issue to the extent that this is an issue. And I don't think there was really anything done to address that. And so that will continue to be an issue. And that seems like something that the owners were pretty eager to protect. I think they like being able to make money without having to spend a lot on player payroll or try to win that much in the current season. And I, I do make some distinction between some teams that actually are getting worse in the short term so that they can build back up and actually really be competitive and good in the future, which is, you know, not something that everyone has succeeded at, but a lot of teams have had some success with that. But Banking, as I'm calling it, I'm workshopping this. I'm not sure that I'm going to stick. Yeah, with but that, it needs but... a noun after it is the problem. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I get that the rhyming is really tempting, right. but it yeah. needs a banking. It needs a another noun. It needs we'll a work noun. on it. But yeah, we'll work. If anything. That. That is maybe exacerbated by just a new wave of national broadcast deals, right? So we got some news on that front this week, and I alluded to it the other day, the Apple TV Plus streaming deal, but there's also an NBC Sports deal to stream games on Peacock, so (sighs) the... Apple deal is for Friday night games. The NBC deal is, what, Monday and Wednesday night games that used to be on ESPN. And so the first deal is worth $85 million a year for seven years, and the Peacock deal is smaller. It's $30 million a year. But I think this could be part of the problem in the sense that this is more money that's going into teams' coffers, whether or not they actually try to put a competitive product on the field. So I think prior to these agreements, the annual average of the league's national media deals was like $1.84 billion, which right. gets split evenly among the 30 teams, and now it's $1.96 billion. So up 26% and, you know, basically $2 billion. And just cribbing from Craig Calcaterra's newsletter earlier this week, doing the math, that means that each team now gets $65 million plus a year from national TV deals alone, just national deals, not local broadcast deals, which themselves average around $50 million a year. Not ticket sales, not concession sales, not sponsorships, not merch sales, and not revenue-sharing checks from other teams, just the national TV deals. And so you think of how much money that is, like $115 million or something just as a starting point, and then there are teams that have payrolls a lot lower than that. So, yeah. you know, they have other expenses, obviously, other than player payrolls as well. But sure. still, do the math and, you know, maybe the incentive to push your payroll higher is not always there. So <laughs> I don't think that was addressed in this deal. And that seems like something that... Hopefully, we'll have to be addressed at some point, although I think it'll just get harder and harder to address as time goes on. Yeah, I think that it's something that requires a more precise assessment of the issue rather than saying like tanking generally. Oh, Ben, I have a terrible suggestion for what you're talking about. (laughs) Oh, no, Ben, it's really bad. I'm going to say it. And then if you're like, Meg, that's not worth it for us to have to grapple with in the Facebook group, you can just say, that and we'll cut it but you know what i think that we want to call it okay it's not tanking it's nutting Ooh, 
Oh yeah. Because okay. this is this is the problem, right? We have to yeah, yeah. Okay. So, thank you for laughing. And also, like this is the distinction that we're trying to draw. And and I think that if if philosophically the idea of um sort of down periods bothers you, I think that there are still ways that that can you can access that annoyance if you want to and be like reasonable about it and th- and think about it in a way that's sort of rigorous. But I think that the the problem that we're really trying to to solve for here is the pirates. Like and yep. and I want to acknowledge and make sure that we continue to do a good job of differentiating between the ownership issue that exists in these teams and like the team personnel issue that exists. Because sometimes, you know, as we've discussed, a GM candidate is appealing to an owner because they have a proven track record of of doing well with less, right? And they are Mm -hmm. sort of ideologically aligned on that, or at least they are willing to engage in that in order to be a GM. But I do think that we we want to distinguish amongst ourselves between ownership and its goals and like the goals of team employees and you know maybe this makes me a softy or maybe this makes me overly sympathetic to friends I have who work on the team side but I do think that there are a lot of people who are working really really hard to get a freaking ring and mm-hmm. and those people are often doing so within budget constraints that they would chafe against publicly if it didn't you know mean that they wouldn't work in baseball anymore so i do want us to draw that distinction but i think that what you're really concerned by ben the thing that you uh, worry (laughs) is destabilizing baseball is nutting this is going to be a field day for no context ew pod the twitter account so michael matten get your tweets ready (laughs) but i like it i endorse nutting as our preferred term for tanking <laughs> oh no i mean the nice, there, it is. there you go uh that's that's the that's the pull quote for this um and and i think that like one of the nice things about that particular entendre is that um you know the the folks who are overly concerned about swearing you know it, it passes the first <laughs> yeah. threshold something for them yeah yeah mm-hmm. it does it does introduce the possibility of some real strangeness um amongst <laughs> your children at school and for that we apologize but uh you know it, sometimes a joke is just there and it <laughs> it it works and it feels right and you gotta yeah. you gotta let it into the world so there you go yep. gotta go for that one all right oh, are you gonna name the episode that we have like a thinking, serious do I, do I we have, a, I we have a serious nutting, interview probably. you know at, <laughs> yeah to share here so maybe not maybe we don't want to <laughs> we don't want to wed those concepts together perhaps no but uh maybe in the podcast summary <laughs> at least but i did oh, want to ask like what is your take on fracturing the streaming distribution of MLB because I don't know if this is terrible or whether it's in some senses forward-looking like I think one take has basically been this is MLB and the owners just trying to maximize their short-term revenue at the expense of the growth of the game right so they can just splinter up the schedule and have some games here and some games there and they can maximize the revenue that they get but make discoverability harder make it harder to find baseball and thus make it harder to create fans and in the long term you're kind of cannibalizing your audience in order to make a quick buck another perspective is streaming is the future right and for now you have a bunch of broadcast deals with 
cable providers and cable networks, but will those go away long term? Who knows? Will that money be there? Maybe this is sort of future proofing MLB or positioning it to get exposure via the ways that people will be consuming content in the future. And maybe that could reach a different audience, you know, an audience that, say, has Apple TV Plus because it wants to watch Ted Lasso or whatever and doesn't subscribe to MLB TV, but... If it sees an MLB game on a Friday night, might tune in and who knows, get hooked on baseball that way. So maybe you are making it harder for some people to find baseball. Maybe you're making it easier for other people to find baseball. If you're an MLB TV subscriber, I guess it pretty inarguably reduces the value of what you're getting to some extent if those games are blacked out on MLB TV, although not blacked out locally. And with the Apple deal, at least, it seems like you will be able to access those games for free initially, but I would guess not for long, (laughs) as long as you have the app or register for an account or however you access it. So I'm of two minds about this. I don't know that it's universally bad. It's certainly not universally good. It would be great, obviously, like if MLB were the NFL and you just had like every game on networks that everyone had and knew how to find. But you do kind of have to work within the reality of what MLB is now and how people tend to follow the game, which is locally. And so there are some challenges there. And I know that some other sports leagues have explored other streaming deals of their own. So it's not solely an MLB phenomenon either. Right. Yeah. I, I'm very much of two minds about it because on the one hand, I think that putting games behind a paywall, another paywall where people are having to choose between which streaming services they pick and they might not be choosing right now on the basis of baseball, like that strikes me as tricky. But I also think that having some forward-looking acknowledgement that as more and more folks move towards streaming, we have this sort of looming RSN problem from Mm -hmm. a revenue perspective is like an unfortunate reality that it's probably not bad for us to try to get out ahead of a little bit, right? And so I think it stinks. But also I think that if we have more avenues whereby some games might not be subject to blackout, And granted, Mm -hmm. we're not exactly gaining games in that regard, right? Because these deals that were just signed are replacing what would be existing ESPN coverage. Yeah. So we're not actually tipping the scales in favor of more access, at least from a blackout perspective. But I mean, at some point, it's going to be a problem that a lot of our revenue in the sport is dependent on carriage fees that are at least going to have to decline based on the amount yeah. of, of cord cutting we're going to experience in the next however many years. So I don't know. It does feel like there should be a solution there that is meaningful and sort of forward-looking to try to prevent that bubble from bursting or at least minimizing the impact of that bubble bursting. Mm-hmm. We can't have an NFL model because it's just so many games. But I don't know. Maybe the future of baseball broadcasting looks like a really – kind of expensive and souped up MLB TV. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I know that there have been some discussions about more streaming within local markets so that you would have a, a workaround for blackouts right. potentially. And there are some places where you can do that. If you're a cable subscriber already, you can also stream. But 
yeah, it's all in flux. And so I have some sympathy in that they're trying to navigate this changing media and broadcast market. And I just hope it ends up with baseball being in front of as many eyeballs as possible. I don't know that I have a ton of faith that that's what will happen. But there are definitely some challenges, not just because of the ways that people are finding these things changing, but also just because of the way that people watch baseball as opposed to some other sports. And you can't really pretend that that's not the case. It'd be nice if you could make everyone interested in every team at all times, but (laughs) that's not the reality. So you do kind of have to meet people where they are and how their fandom works. So just wanted to mention that. And also wanted to mention, I played Wardle this morning. (laughs) Yeah. I I don't know whether you're going to be a Wardle person. I am probably not going to be a... I'm not a Wordle person either, but if any of you thought that there were not enough tweets about (laughs) people's results in their daily word guessing games, then brace yourself because all of baseball Twitter is probably about to be bombarded by Wordle tweets in addition to Wordle tweets. So Wordle is from Jeremy Frank at MLB Random Stats on Twitter, and he's been at Baseball Reference. And it is an MLB variant of Wordle. There are a zillion variants of Wordle. And so I've been waiting for a, a baseball one. I kind of hoped that there would be a statistical component to it, which there isn't currently, despite the name having war in it. This is just a a player guessing game, and there are player guessing games for other sports out there as well. But the way that it works is you just have to guess a player name. And probably people will figure out the optimal first name to guess. But Mm. there are a bunch of different categories, team, league, division, handedness for batting, handedness for throwing, country of birth, year of birth, and position. And you get eight guesses. And similar to Wordle, there's a a color-coded scheme here where if you get one of the categories right, then it's green. If you are close on a couple of the categories, then it's yellow, and you just have to narrow it down and hopefully do it within eight guesses. And it's not easy. I was able to do the first one successfully. I will not spoil it, but it is not easy. And obviously, there are only so many MLB players out there. There are fewer MLB players than there are words. So that's nice, I guess. But it's still tough. And it challenges my like face blindness, but forehandedness <laughs> kind of thing. And, you know, it's it's difficult even for for someone like me. So I imagine a lot of our listeners will be playing and enjoying it. But I'm just not a word game guy. For whatever reason, I'm a video game guy, just not really a trivia person, not a word game guy. You'd think I would be. I enjoy words. I care about words, but not so much word games for whatever reason. So don't think I'll be a regular Wordle guy and I will not be broadcasting my Wordle results, (laughs) but I'm sure that many people will. And it fills a niche need in the market. I'm sure that there were people out there who were hoping for a Wordle for baseball. But yeah, I kind of wanted, like, I don't know what the, the stat version of this would be, and it would probably be an even more niche product if you brought advanced stats into it, but that would make it a little more fun to me. Although it, it it's tough. Like, I, you know, even when I narrowed down a, a date of birth, it was like, is this guy... 30 or is he like 28 or 29 yeah. or 31 like it's it's hard even if you yeah. have the the ballpark so to speak it's <laughs> uh it's tough to pin down the specifics 
Yeah, I don't know why I don't. It doesn't resonate with me. Like people are probably thinking, but Meg, your puns, like surely right, you like yeah. these. But I think part of it is that I'm a bad speller. Like I'm a, <laughs> this is a fun fact about me, like probably a surprisingly bad speller, both in terms of what my job is and also how much I read. But mm-hmm. I'm just, I've never been a good speller. And so I think part of it is anticipated frustration with an ability to get stuff right, if only for, for being able to spell. <laughs> so there's that part of it. I don't know. I just have a couple too many things going on, I guess, which I don't say like yeah. people who play Word alone have anything going on, but it's just, it hasn't. It hasn't spoken to me. I haven't felt moved. But if you like it, then I'm happy for you. I'm happy mm-hmm. you're all happy. And if Wordle isn't your thing, maybe weather splits at Fancrest. Yeah. Would be. Are you all just pandering to Mike Trout now? Is that what this oh, is? Oh, <laughs> gosh, I didn't even think of that. But yes, yes, we are. We want, you know, like uh, Mike had one good day and we didn't want it to stop there. So we thought, you know, now that the CBA is resolved and he might turn his attention to other things, perhaps uh, that will also <laughs> include weather. I don't know if I will end up using this all that much. Yeah, it's, it's cool. It's I can cool. imagine interesting applications of yeah. this. It's, it's not information that's easy to obtain otherwise. No. I mean, you can now, since 2010, you can look at splits by temperature and barometric pressure yes. and air density and wind direction and yes. wind speed. And it's like actually granular, like down to the hour instead of just the starting figures yes. at the beginning of the game. So this is impressive. And I'm sure that there will be interesting analytical applications of this. Although I think it's it's playing into the stat head stereotype of like trivial splits. Like <laughs> when, when people think of stat heads in baseball, like the stereotype is like, here's what this guy did like yes. in night games on Wednesdays, like, you know, when the weather was this or whatever. And now we can actually get closer to that. Whereas that is uh, trivia, maybe that is fun facts, potentially. That's not sabermetrics. That's not analysis necessarily, but this can be both. I think you could find trivia and you could also do analysis. But yes, I think those are the, the two possible ramifications of this is that Mike Trout may spend a lot more time browsing Fangrass.com. Come. Yes. Even aside from the war leaderboards where he is typically at the top. And <laughs> this may reinforce people's sense that uh, baseball nerds only care about slicing and dicing into ever smaller slivers of production. Well, I am given to understand, Ben, one of the things that I'm given to understand is that if you are a daily fantasy player, mm-hmm. that this is perhaps relevant to you in some sort of meaningful yeah. way. And so, uh, you know, if that is true for or you- a, a close cousin of daily fantasy <laughs> sports betting. <sighs> I don't acknowledge that use case as one that we are catering to, although I suppose I have to um, acknowledge that it might be important for some. Perhaps, perhaps. But yes, uh, I think that I'm given to understand that this would be useful information for those who play daily fantasy. And so there it is for you. If you find other interesting research applications, I hope that you will write about them so that we might all benefit. But yeah, I don't know. We just would like... We want you to be able to find 
any data that you might find interesting for your your uh, your uses as a as a fan or a researcher at Fangraphs. And there's there's sort of more to come on that score. But uh, if you will allow me to make a slightly less urgent but still um, appreciative membership plea, like this is the kind of stuff that your membership money goes towards. So mm-hmm. help us build better Fangraphs, including with weather data if that's your if that's your yen. So. Mm-hmm. Last thing we should say, because I know people have been wondering about season previews, team previews. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so a little PSA here. We have discussed and we have considered some feedback and also the realities of the calendar. Yeah. And we are not going to and really cannot do what we usually do, no. which is 15 full team preview episodes where we talk about two teams per podcast there's just not enough time to do that the opening day is in less than four weeks and (laughs) that series so stupid (laughs) that series typically takes us uh what at least six if not more and and that's with some non-preview episodes mixed in so is there a way that we could potentially cram it in where we just do nothing else for the next month and do some extra episodes or something? I guess, like, in theory, we could do that. But, A, we don't really want to. <laughs> and also, it would be difficult. It's hard enough to schedule that series as it is because, you know, we try to talk to people who cover those teams and they're always on the move and they're covering those teams and they're at spring training. And so it can be tough from a scheduling perspective. And so to do three or more of those per week with six guests would be very difficult. And beyond that, It's just going to be a really busy few weeks regardless. I mean, there's going to be a ton of news, right? Right. We're going to have a lot of signings to discuss. And so I think in the interests of just not making it impossible from a logistical standpoint and not ending up with three-hour episodes because we have so many (laughs) signings to discuss in addition to previews and who knows what else, we're going to scale it back. We're still going to do some previewing oh yeah and we we haven't decided exactly on the form but we will probably do some sort of divisional format i think yeah probably so we'll still have episodes and i don't know how we'll handle the guests or the experts for those things but we will definitely do team preview content it will yeah. just not be the comprehensive exhaustive series that we generally do and We know that some people love those episodes. Some people totally tune out of those episodes. So your mileage may vary on whether this is a good thing or a bad thing. But we hope that people will understand just, uh, hey, there was a lockout. It's strange circumstances. It's a weird year. Nothing else was normal. And so the Effectively Wild season preview series will not be entirely normal either. But we will still do what we can. Yeah. And unless we get... A planet-altering pandemic or mm-hmm. another unanticipated somehow major labor dispute. Like, we will be back to our normal approach next year. I'm trying not to be seduced by the idea of normalcy, Ben, because yeah. it feels like, well, a mis, sort of misdiagnosis of our current moment and also setting myself up to be just horribly d- disappointed by global events later. But, you know, like... <laughs> We appreciate people being flexible with us this year, and we look forward to having more sort of normal grist for the mill in addition to the the other uh, grist for the mill here. So I don't know. We'll figure it out in the next little bit. I don't think any – no one will feel neglected except for apparently because we are contractually obligated Reds fans. So <laughs> Right. 
Yeah, and one downside is that a, a lot of people, it seems like anecdotally, do find Effectively Wild through the Team Preview series. Yeah. And, you know, they enter <sighs> through a team-centric preview pod and then suddenly we're talking about like <laughs> what would happen if you did this we're weird talking about change? nutting like, ben we're yeah. talking about nutting so the team preview series is like not really reflective of what effectively wild is like right. for the vast majority of the year so <laughs> probably some people who find the podcast through that are like well this is not what i thought it was going to be right <laughs> but but it seems like a number of people do find it and stick around and so you know just having all of those guests in all of those different markets come on the show and promote their appearances then leads to people finding it who wouldn't otherwise so maybe we're missing out on a little of that so you'll just have to help us compensate i guess by telling your friends about (laughs) the podcast you enjoy effectively wild so we'll get that started I don't know, in a couple of weeks or, or we'll we'll talk about it. We'll see how, how much there is to discuss transaction-wise. Another reason, by the way, that we didn't start this, say, earlier. I mean, one option is that we could have just started team previews before the lockout was right. lifted. But A, we didn't know for sure if or when the lockout would be lifted. And also, just so many teams are incomplete relative to where they are typically at this stage. So we figured, well, why do a preview for this team that is then going to make a a bunch of major moves and there are some teams that are done probably for all intents and purposes so we could have maybe front loaded those but you know things are just going to be changing and you know to press people on what's your win total prediction for this team and then that team signs Carlos Correa the next day I mean you know felt silly Not that there's all that much utility to (laughs) team win total predictions in a usual year. But anyway, that's an update for you all. And just perhaps to to put an exclamation point on the point. Jerry DePoto on Seattle Radio. I woke up this morning ready to transact. (laughs) Wow. What a quote. (laughs) He can only ever be himself, you know? I mean, we can all only ever be ourselves. But you know what? Wait, Jerry? (laughs) Still Jerry. So there you go. <laughs> yeah. I don't know that the Mariners like have as many moves to make as, as some teams do or or whether they will make as many, but you know that he has to be just itching to oh, pull yeah. the trigger on some transactions. This must have been hard for him. So <laughs> we'll see. So as we mentioned last time, we have a guest to talk about the international draft. Maria Torres of The Athletic, who has been covering this for a while and wrote a piece about it with Ken Rosenthal earlier this year. We recorded this interview on Thursday, but I don't think that will actually affect any of the content because Mm -mm. nothing has changed as regards this specific issue. But earlier this week, it became a a major sticking point, point of contention, and really occupied a a central role for a day or so there. The push and pull about the international draft, which the league wants and the players don't want, and they have agreed to table those discussions. Not table, but extend those discussions. There's a new deadline, (laughs) which I'm sure is just ironclad and could never move under any circumstances. But July 25th is the new deadline. And the thing is that MLB has tied 
the issue of the international draft, as we talked about last time, to the issue of the qualifying offers and free agent compensation. And so the players obviously would like qualifying offers to be removed. The league would like the international draft to be imposed. So it's kind of a a tit for tat. And if they are able to agree on that, then there will be an international draft imposed maybe a few years down the road and qualifying offers will be dropped. And if they don't agree, then status quo, right? They may just decide, well, we will stick with no international draft and continue with qualifying offer uh, system. So we don't know how that will work out, but it's like almost too complex a subject to cover in a single podcast segment. So consider this an overview more so than a comprehensive chronicle of the issues at stake. But it is important, even though it didn't end up sabotaging the CBA, it's still a a matter that is really important to a lot of players and also to the future of the sport. So we wanted to have Maria on to tell us a little bit about it. And one thing I I should say, I, I was kind of heartened, I guess, that the players held the line on that as opposed to just using it as a chip because in the past, you know, (laughs) there have been times when the union has uh, either not been uh, diligent about representing the interests of people who are not actually in the bargaining unit or has kind of actively traded (laughs) yeah traded their welfare for things that they wanted which you know i mean i guess they have an obligation to represent their own members so i get how it works but it's been unfortunate and i think it's good that in this case enough of the major league players particularly the players from latin countries who in many cases came up through the international free agent system They communicated that, no, this is actually really important to us, even though it no longer affects us personally in that we would not be subject to this draft like we care enough about our countries and our countrymen, et cetera, that we do not just want to totally sell them out here to, you know, to get rid of the qualifying offer compensation for free agents. So I think that is good. And I will also say that there has been some confusion about why this even is a matter subject to bargaining. Mm -hmm. This doesn't come up on the interview because it's a subject that we were all a bit hazy about when we were talking. But since then, I have tried to enlighten myself, by which I mean mostly that I have talked to Dan Simborski about it, and Dan has consulted the labor lawyer Eugene Friedman about it. So there might be a bit of telephone happening here, but this is my understanding. Basically, in collective bargaining, you have mandatory subjects that have a duty to be bargained and permissive subjects that don't have a duty to be bargained, but can be bargained over if both sides agree. And negotiations that involve people who are not part of the bargaining unit are permissive subjects, and everyone other than major league players is not part of the MLBPA bargaining unit. They're not in the union because they're not in the majors. So international amateur players who would be subject to the international draft and who are currently subject to international free agency, they're not part of the union. They're not part of the bargaining unit. And so you might say, well, Why is the union negotiating over what happens to them then? However, the MLBPA can say that they have authority to discuss that subject because those players are entering the bargaining unit. They will be in the bargaining unit at some point. That's what happens in the NBA and the NFL, I think. But obviously in those sports and those leagues, players go directly from the draft to the majors, essentially, very often. Yeah. Whereas you're not typically going to get an international free agent, at least an international amateur free agent 
agent who is going from that to the big leagues without passing go, go being maybe several seasons in the minor leagues. But they could say that some of those players would very quickly join the unit, and so the terms need to be discussed. Now, MLB could try to just impose an international draft and say, hey, this is not a mandatory subject. You have no say here. We're just going to do it. And they could dare the union to strike over it. And according to Eugene and other labor lawyers that Dan has talked to, the MLBPA would likely lose a dispute over that with the National Labor Relations Board. However, there is still some value for the league in negotiating over this rather than just issuing a proclamation for one thing because it would lead to a lot of bad blood because there are many members of the union who do care deeply about this issue and so it would ruffle feathers to say the least if MLB just unilaterally said this is what we're doing. Also there's the potential for nuisance and legal fees because if MLB did strike over it and there were a dispute even if MLB ended up winning that dispute it could be a hassle and there's some slight possibility, I suppose, that they could lose the dispute, that the court could say that, no, this actually is a mandatory subject that you're supposed to have bargained over, in which case MLB could be found at fault and could be subject to back wages and other penalties. So essentially, they may have the option available to them of just saying, we have an international draft now, but it's easier if they can come to an agreement and they would prefer to do it that way. However, there's a limit to the incentives for them and the amount that they're motivated to give up to get it, because there's some possibility that they could get it without giving up anything concrete in the long term. And there's some precedent for this because obviously the amateur draft, the domestic amateur draft, has been somewhat subject to bargaining. Like that was part of the CBA too, that the draft is going to be 20 rounds now. And you might say, well, domestic amateurs are not part of the union either. But the union has historically had some say in how the draft works. Partly though, because there is a more direct relationship between the draft and the pay of unit members in that you have the qualifying offer system, you have draft pick compensation. So how the draft works actually does have some bearing on how MLB players are paid. And that may be one reason why the owners are willing to give up the qualifying offer system. Because if you take that away, then the union has a shakier case to have any say over how the draft works. But it's kind of a gray area. It's kind of complicated. You know, once you start extending into areas that do not actually cover bargaining unit members, I mean, you could say, well, why doesn't the union make us think about minor league pay or working conditions? Because some minor leaguers are closer to being bargaining unit members than international amateur free agents are, and they haven't really been motivated to make that a priority, and they probably don't have the legal standing to actually do it if they wanted to. Right. But that's the impression, the loose understanding I have formed about why the international draft is actually a matter that has been discussed in CBA negotiations. Don't take it as gospel necessarily. We might need to get a labor lawyer on here or consult yeah. one at some point. And, and maybe you are one listening to this one and feel free to fill us in if that's the case. But I figured other people might have that question too. Yeah. All right. So we will be back in just a moment with Maria. Don't forget the draft resistors in the sand. Well, we are joined now by Maria Torres, who is a staff writer for The Athletic. She covers prospects and she covers the international market. She wrote a great feature along with Ken Rosenthal on the international draft. 
the benefits and drawbacks back in January, and I'm guessing that piece has gotten a lot of traffic this week. We are having her on here to school us on this pretty complex subject. So Maria, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you for having me. So I'd be interested in what you've heard about how these negotiations have happened when it concerns this specific subject, because we know that for now, the union and the league have agreed to disagree and continue negotiating for a few months about the international draft. But I think a lot of fans maybe were somewhat surprised that this became such a contentious topic this week. But it's been part of the negotiations all along and in previous rounds of the CBA, right? And I I saw some people express the sentiment that, oh, well, they can't let this hold up the deal. And I guess they did ultimately come to that conclusion and say, well, we'll figure out later. But this is a very important topic. It's very important to the league. It's very important to a lot of players. It's very important to the future of the sport. And there was a difference of opinion or at least a difference of statements about who offered what, when, and when exactly this came up. And so I wonder what you have concluded about how this kind of came to a head this week and when it was really introduced. Based on the comments that were made Wednesday night on Twitter, it seems like MLB backed out of wanting to include an international draft in the proposal in some time in the last few months, like before these negotiations like really took off, you know, at the end of February. And what it seems like there is that, you know, players decided, well, we're just not going to include anything related to the international draft in our own proposals. And it's we're just going to take a vote and the vote is no. Mm -hmm. As you've mentioned already, international draft has been talked about for a long, long time. And it's not just as of yesterday. It's not just as of Saturday. I think the first proposal introduced in this round of negotiations was submitted on Saturday that included the international draft. And it's it seems a little disingenuous to me to say that there's you know there was no inkling that an international draft proposal was coming because yeah. um, it was part of negotiations in 2016 and it was a very contentious issue in 2016 as well. And things have only gotten worse in the international market since then. And players weren't happy with the the hard cap that was placed with the CBA. So naturally, something was going to come of that. Yeah, maybe before we get into the specifics of MLB's proposal here and how those proposals are sort of being received in different parts of the playing population, we can take a step back and and make reference to some of those issues that have emerged since the hard capping system has been introduced. I know that asking you to explain all of the abuses and complications that take place in the international amateur market is is probably a podcast in and of itself, but for our listeners who are perhaps less familiar with some of the issues there, can you can you lay out sort of a broad outline of the state of affairs in international amateur signings as they stand now? Absolutely. The international market didn't use to be capped. There was a soft cap that was introduced in the CBA before the 2017-21 CBA. And the teams didn't really care that there was a cap. They just overspent anyhow, um, which is why you got those deals like the Moncada deal and the Luis Robert deal. Like Those are really big numbers for international free agents that you just didn't see after the 2017 CBA was implemented because that CBA made it so that teams had a hard bonus pool that they had to abide by and they could trade for some additional space, but that's pretty much what you got. So 
because for five years, teams knew exactly how much money they were going to have available to them in the international market, they figured they could get ahead on their competition by just starting to scout players younger and younger. So generally speaking, like players are not allowed to sign or commit to signing to teams until they're 16 or about to turn 16. I think it's actually 16 to be fair, but at that point, if you know if a team is waiting to sign a player when he turns 16 or to get a verbal agreement with a player at 16, he's already behind because there's however many other teams that have already seen this guy and already probably put in an offer on him for multiple years. So teams just started to like scout earlier and earlier. And it got to the point where there were handshake agreements made, verbal commitments made, where even 12 and 13 year olds were put, just moved off the market because an MLB team saw a 12 year old and was like. This kid could probably be pretty good by, his, by the time he's 16. Let's let's put a number out there. Let's offer him a million dollars. So once that kid gets the million dollar offer and he and his group decide to accept that offer, they become they just come off of the international market. So they no longer are showcasing their talents to other teams. They aren't working out with other teams. They have committed themselves to X team, and that's the team they're going to sign with when they turn 16 four years later. I mean, besides the fact that that's kind of disgusting in itself, like there's also the fact that, you know, if the kid gets to the point he's almost about to sign, um, he's turned 16 and he was offered a million dollars in those four years, like he's probably made a lot of strides in his development. He probably is worth more than a million dollars. But there's also the the possibility that the team that saw him at 12 and was like, here, let's have a million. We'll give you a million that they have seen somebody else in the interim and decided they're going to use part of his bonus and give it to someone else. And that leaves the kid in a bind because by that point, he's already probably been come after by like loan sharks in his native country who have said, hey, we'll give you this million dollars now. And then the kid has no leverage. He also hasn't been seen by another team. So he has no choice but to take the discounted bonus. And then he's in a lurch because he's already probably spent most of the million dollars by then because the reason these kids, a lot of them are pursuing baseball is because it's the only way for them to give it out of poverty. The, the countries that are, for the most part, governed by the international free agent market are really poor countries. And particularly in the Dominican Republic, where I feel like I have a little bit more of a sense of how things happen there, that's a really big chunk of the players who are signing every year. A lot of those players are very poor. And they're just being exploited by the time they're 12 because teams decided they were going to start to scout younger and younger. Yeah, and just about everyone seemingly agrees that the current system is pretty broken, even people who oppose the idea of a draft. But where does the blame lie? And maybe it lies in multiple areas. Is it that MLB is not enforcing rules that are on the books? Is it that those rules just have never been on the books? Is it that the system is just unmanageable in some ways Mm -hmm. that would make it tough to enforce even if there were the right rules and regulations? As you just suggested, it's very complicated to determine where (laughs) the blame goes. Yeah, I just based on based on my reporting with Ken Rosenthal in the last few months, a lot of teams like people in teams can also like acknowledge that they've had a very big role in in all of this because trainers that trainers being the amateur trainers who develop the young players that are signing internationally they don't have that much they don't have as much leverage as the teams do they don't have they have the player but they don't have the money so like the teams are the ones who are forcing trainers to kind of adhere to their 
demands. So a trainer is not going to say to a team like, oh, we're going to take back. We're, we're going to like renege on this agreement that you made with X kid because he's getting more money from a different team. Like trainers can't do that because then they lose, they lose everything. They lose all their credibility in the market. So really it's a combination of like teams, like forcing the hands of the amateurs in the foreign countries. It's also a combination of the fact that Major League Baseball hasn't really done anything to clean anything up. You know, they've done, they've implemented things like more like intense, like steroid testing. They implemented the trainer partnership program. And that was intended to make sure that intended to, to put as many amateur trainers in a program that would allow MLB to have like direct communication with the people who are in charge of developing amateur talent abroad. And that comes with a whole other, a whole other aspect. But MLB, besides like those kind of things, like they haven't really cracked down on, on anything. And MLB will say that the reason they haven't been able to pursue action against people who have done things wrongly is because they can't, they don't actually have literal evidence that they can use. But a lot, because a lot of it is allegedly hearsay. So it's a combination, I think. And I think it's a combination of the people that are in power. Which always feels like such a sort of weak retort to the question of why aren't you enforcing your own rules? Because Mm -hmm. it's not like any of this is particularly secret, right? Like if you go on the Instagram accounts of some of these kids who have handshake deals that have been reported by the league's own prospect outlet, like they're wearing (laughs) gear from the team that they're going to be signing for in two years, right? They're not... They're not hiding it yep. particularly well. So it, it always strikes me as sort of a, a weak retort and lends some credibility to the idea that they are letting it to some extent degrade to this point so that they have, you know, an argument for a draft because, you know, it's not it's not a secret right now. Mm-hmm. Exactly. I mean, I had a there was an international or at least a former international scouting director who told me that there was one point who where he had gone into an academy, had a handshake deal done with a very high prospect and by the time he had walked out of that academy within 30 minutes like everyone knew everyone being like you know people like in the know right but like there were a lot of people who knew that this kid was now off the market so do the players deserve some of the blame for conceding the hard cap system in the previous round of negotiations is that a decision that maybe they would want back or that they didn't consider enough at the time the fact that that might exacerbate some of these issues i don't know whether or not i can say that the players deserve the blame for for conceding that but i can say that they definitely regret that being in there i mean um i i I spoke to juan soto a little bit about the international draft at the end of this previous season just to get a you know his perspective on it and he came from the previous system the one the before the 17 cba where you know, there was no no cap, really. It was just that soft cap. And it, he remembers really not hitting the the showcase scene until he was like late 14, almost 15, which is unheard of now. Because if you're not entering the prospects like showcase scene until you're 14, you're way behind as a player. So he just he, he expressed that he just wished things would go back to the way it used to be. So there was just a soft cap, at, if anything at all. Can you talk a little bit more about the perspective of the contingent of the player base now that is opposed to the implementation of an international draft? Because we've heard in recent days from active players like Fernando Tatis Jr. and retired players like David Ortiz expressing concern either with the implementation of a draft at all or the implementation of one immediately, right? I think a lot of what Ortiz seemed to be saying was that this is going to take time to develop the infrastructure necessary to do it in a way that 
that doesn't introduce its own host of issues. So what's the what's the current consensus among the union membership around the idea of a draft? What it sounds like right now is that players are against any form of draft, which which they should be. I mean, in terms of labor, like, yeah, they right. should not be for a draft at all. I think the, the bigger concern is just they're afraid that there will be even less opportunity for Latin American players to become professional baseball players. Because when you look at like the numbers, a 600 round, uh, sorry, not 600 round, oof, we'll be there forever. A 600 pick draft plus undrafted free agents plus whatever like compensatory rounds there are, like that probably wouldn't be I mean, it might not. It might be hard to to make up the same numbers that you would have seen in like 2019 before COVID in terms of players signing every year. I don't know off the top of my head exactly how many players signed in the 2019-20 signing period, but I imagine it's much higher than 600, or maybe not much higher, but at least higher than 600. So that plus the you know minor league teams falling off the map now with with much many fewer rosters than it used to exist. It's it's kind of hard for them to probably, you know, balance like, okay, okay well, how would we get a draft? But we have a draft, but like, where are these players going to go when they're signed? And Major League Baseball says that they'll they'll still allow two rosters per team in the Dominican Summer League, which is where a lot of the international prospects go when they first sign. But after the DSL, there's still fewer opportunity. There's still less opportunity in the United States. So I think that's I think their biggest concern is just not having opportunity for as many young players as there is right now. Yeah, you note in your article with Ken that more than a fifth of the MLB playing population is players from Latin America, that it's more than that in the minors. I was going to ask because the MLBPA executive committee demographics are not quite that way, right? Mm-hmm. I think all eight players there are American and came through the domestic amateur draft system. So one might think, well, can they really represent the interest? Can they speak to this from a personal perspective? But it sounds as if the players who care the most about this are making their opinions heard and that those voices are being heated to a great extent. I mean, I guess none of us knows exactly the inner workings of the union, but it sounds like even if those players are not directly represented necessarily on the subcommittee, their interests are probably being represented pretty well from what we can tell. I wouldn't say that their interests are being represented all that well. I still uh-huh. think that there's, I mean, it just seems to me like there has to be more. And I think that there's not an, enough representation on that executive subcommittee um, mm-hmm. to properly gauge. I mean, it's a lot of people. <laughs> and granted, it's a fraternity, right? Like, you know, all the baseball players know all baseball players, essentially, especially if you're from the same town in the Dominican Republic, like you're going to know and that information can probably be spread to the right place. But at the same time, I am not 100% sure that everyone's opinion is being heard on this topic, which I think is maybe why they're very insistent on at least elongating the deadline on it. Mm-hmm. And one of those eight is Francisco Lindor, who's from Puerto Rico, and he put out a statement on Thursday where he said the issue is bigger than just Latin players or amateur players. It's about all players and about the future of the game. We need to get it right. And he might at least be pretty familiar with the after effects of imposing a draft. And that's something that you hear a lot. Mm -hmm. People will decry the effect that the draft has had on the Puerto Rican baseball community. Mm. So I wonder what you've learned about that or whether you think that would potentially apply if an international draft were imposed in other countries. I think one 
thing to keep in mind when it comes to Puerto Rico being folded into the domestic draft is that Puerto Rico's infrastructure for developing amateur talent at that time was nowhere near where it is now in the Dominican Republic and Venezuela. I'm not mm. saying that the infrastructure that's in place now in those countries doesn't need to be bolstered to make sure that an international draft is successful, but I do think they're in a much better spot just based on my conversations with trainers in the Dominican Republic who have heard the same criticisms from trainers who are opposed to the draft. Generally speaking, like a majority of trainers involved who are affected by the international draft are for it because of all the corruption that's in place. Their systems are really, there's not a lot more that they can do to bring up their bring their systems up to speed that is like they've already got a lot of them have their own stadiums that they work at a lot of them even might have their own facilities that they can use because they've built it and have earned enough money to kind of put aside like an, their own place to work the, the instruction that goes on there 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 are trainers who have like former baseball players former professional baseball players on their staff that are helping these kids learn the skills that they need to to become successful at least in the minor leagues so one thing that Puerto Rico was kind of slow to to get up to speed on the infrastructure. That's coming from like someone who was involved in, in Puerto Rican amateur baseball in the 90s, who did a lot of work to kind of bring in that wave of Puerto Rican baseball academies that you see now. And it just took them some time to kind of figure it out. But it, to a pretty large extent, the infrastructure is pretty figured out in Venezuela and the Dominican. So let's spend some time now breaking down at least what the most recent proposal is, obviously, with the decision to sort of delay an implementation decision until July. This could change pretty dramatically between now and then, and we'll just have to have you back on uh, when the time <laughs> comes to lay out where we land. But what was the most the contours of the most recent proposal, both in terms of how many rounds, the, the bonuses that would apply, amateur eligibility, take us through what the league has proposed? The league has proposed a draft with 20 rounds, about 600 picks, with, and we know the possibility for more depending on how many rounds they add. The top slot at this moment would earn $5.5 million, and these slots are like hard slots, so the idea is there's no negotiating up or down like you can see in the domestic draft. So the top player out of Latin America in that year, when that first year, would make $5.5 million. And in terms of what how that compares to the domestic draft, I think if I remember correctly, it's a seventh pick. The seventh pick of the 2021 domestic draft um, yeah. was slotted for that much money. And automatically that kind of raises a red flag because you're saying, okay, the top pick out of Latin America isn't worth the same as the top, as even like the seventh pick in the domestic draft. But there are a lot of other things that go into play. Besides that, there's slots all the way down to the 600 range. I think if the 20-round draft would feature slots totaling about $181 million, and that that's about a $23 million increase in international spending compared to the 164, oh, sorry, 166 that was spent internationally in 2021. This is all by like MLB calculations. So MLB also calculates there would be an additional nine million spent on undrafted free agents who would sign for no more than twenty thousand dollars, and those undrafted free agents would not count toward a team's like international pool. The bottom hundred slots in an international draft would be allocated about three million dollars for an average of about thirty thousand per pick. And according to MLB, 
the average on all bonuses or the average spent on all bonuses for the t- bottom 100 players in the 1920 and 2021 signing periods was $1.78 million. So MLB is contending essentially that there will be more money available to players through a draft system than through the current like signing system in place. Yeah, which when you hear that, you have to be somewhat skeptical because generally (laughs) it doesn't seem as if MLB or any business management, I assume, would push for something that would cost them more money or (laughs) lead to the players getting more money. So that certainly raises an eyebrow. So I guess one question is, do you buy that? But then another question is, Do you think this is mostly about money, entirely about money, or is it very largely for both sides about actually improving the current system? Man, I I wish I could answer that last question. (laughs) (laughs) I think everybody wants to see a better system in place from the trainers to the players in the league, of course, but I don't know if it's all about money either because... I mean, the trainers definitely want to see more money go to their players because that's that's better for their pockets too. But in the end, everybody everybody being that is on the labor side, not 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 so much necessarily on the league side. I think it's really just about opportunity, and I just find it. I just wonder how incentivized teams will be to spend nine million dollars on undrafted free agents, right? If they're not. If they're able, I mean, they're essentially able to do that now. So you're still seeing a lot of people left out in the cold. And one thing that trainers are really concerned about is that they're seeing a lot of players, once they turn 17, they don't even have a chance, especially if they're a position player. I mean, teams like do give a little bit more, more leeway or I guess runway to pitchers and catchers. But when it comes to other position players, like if you're 17 and you haven't gotten and you haven't even been offered anything like the most you're probably going to sign for is like ten thousand dollars and that to trainers is demoralizing because it kind of forces them to either really like expedite the kid's development in some way which you know that that leads to a whole other like murky issue of peds or they just have to give up on a 17 year old kid who by this point has pretty much like not completed his high school education i mean hardly even completed his middle school education and just spent all his childhood on baseball and then just let, turn him back out into society where how is he going to be productive? How is he going to help his family? That's what trainers don't like. And they're hopeful that in the in a new system, if it is an international draft, then their 17-year-old, 18-year-old players will get a chance to be drafted, uh, you know, if they're not drafted at 16. And if they're not, then at least they'll get up to 20000 as an undrafted free agent. Where do you think the rubber is going to have to meet the road in terms of a draft versus the kids and trainers who already have handshake deals with teams? Because especially with the way that the pandemic altered the signing periods, right, and shifted everything back, we have a good idea of who is set to sign in the 2023 signing period and even a number of the 2024 kids. So Mm -hmm. what happens in the interim to the players who, you know, had an assumption that they were going to become a Cub or a Yankee or whatever, and now are sort of in limbo between a deal they they put a handshake deal to and mm-hmm. and a potential spot in this draft. I have really no idea <laughs> if they, if they they can't wait much longer to implement the draft because then you just continue to continue the same cycle. At the same time, like the kids who signed for who have had handshake deals for twenty twenty four, like I mentioned earlier. They probably got that money already somewhere. <laughs> and then what do they do? 
I just don't know. I don't know what comes after if they do agree to international draft. What comes after that? How will a league clean up that mess? I have no possible. I just have no idea. Yeah, that's kind of the theme of all of these negotiations for all of us. <laughs> we just have no idea. But I guess, you know, I can see the case for the draft, given that if you've already conceded the hard caps, then maybe you're most of the way there in some respects and you've exacerbated some of the issues and the status quo is so bad in many ways that maybe it would be the fastest way to fix it. Mm -hmm. Is the union or do people who oppose the draft but still want to see reform, do they have concrete workable ideas for here's how we can get the benefits of a draft without the drawbacks and do you think that they're actually feasible or is it like well yes in an ideal world here's what you do but MLB isn't going to do that <laughs> and so the only way to actually improve things is to settle for not the perfect system but something in between it's kind of like you just said <laughs> the ideal solution is MLB enforces its own rules yeah. and they have for five years not enforced those rules. So the likelihood of them doing that is pretty slim. Mm -hmm. So really all they can do now is find a different solution. And it's, it's obviously it's unfair because you didn't really see what the system should have been like if rules had been actually enforced. So yeah, we have been unable to predict what will happen hours in advance, let alone <laughs> days or months. So it's probably futile to ask you where you think things will stand on July 25th. But and I guess there's always the possibility of just kicking the can down the road a little bit farther, right? So <laughs> Deadlines that... are fluid. We have learned that. <laughs> we have absolutely <laughs> learned that multiple times per day, seemingly. But do you think there will be a resolution to this? sometime this year let's say I mean is it close enough to say that that could happen and of course you know in a lot of these cases we're talking about well you might agree on it now and then you might have a few years to actually implement it which right. maybe makes it a little easier but I don't know do you get the sense that this is close to <laughs> resolution I'm gonna say um, let's just go out on a limb I'm gonna say there's, there's a chance it could be close in July um, between now and then, like, MLB already has an infrastructure in place. They've already presented what the draft mm -hmm. system would look like. They've committed to all the prospect showcases that they need to, that, th that they think would help. They've thought this out, which is why it's very silly for there to be any kind of suggestion that this is a last minute. Because MLB has a plan for what a draft would look like and what they could do abroad to make sure it's successful. So now it's just really up to the to the players to decide whether or not they find that acceptable. And I think in the next few months, as they hopefully <laughs> return to, to the field and to their clubhouses and are able to talk in person with the people who are actually most affected, right. I would hope that they can come to a consensus on maybe what needs to be added to the international draft structure that MLB is proposing. I do understand from their perspective, like why just throwing it in at the last minute is very, very shocking and not okay with them. It makes a lot of sense because they haven't really gotten the chance to sit down with it and consider other alternatives. But I think with that buffer that's put in there right now, that things could go their way. 
Okay, well, we encourage everyone to read Maria's feature and find her on Twitter as well, at Maria underscore Taurus 3, and maybe we will have her back if and when there is an actual end to this saga, and even if there is a draft, I guess that might not be the end to this saga, really, because (laughs) you and Ken quoted an agent, Ulysses Cabrera, who said that even if there were a draft, he doesn't think that it would stop, quote, unquote, nefarious dealings between trainers and scouts, which some of your other sources seem to corroborate so maybe it's not even as simple as just implementing a draft although that would curtail some of the activity that you've documented here but this has been a story for years and it seems like it's probably going to continue to be a story for years so (laughs) it's good that people like you are on top of it thank you so much for having me on to talk about it we didn't even get into the nefarious dealing so that's how much we already had to talk about (laughs) (laughs) do you want to share any nefarious dealings before we let you go seems relevant yeah i mean we know about some of them we know about the braves for instance right (laughs) right exactly but the one that seems to be like the biggest sticking point for trainers right now let's like kind of break it down like scouting you know scouting works by region scouts are assigned to different areas in different countries and that's the area they're supposed to scout in and they're not supposed to go outside of that region to scout a player. The way things have worked, especially since COVID, is that there have like trainers have seen scouts from outside of their region going to scout players and going to trainers who are developing these players and making an agreement with them wherein they'll say, Hey, we want to sign this kid, but we have to sign him out of this region out of with this trainer because that's where we can get you the money that we think that this kid deserves so if you transfer this player to this new trainer we can work out a deal where you get a cut of his signing bonus and things go from there you know the trainer the trainer gets the cut there's a scout who also gets the cut from the trainer the new trainer because that scout brought them that player and then of course the scout would also get a benefit from I would get another kind of kickback just because, you know, their their team was the one who signed the player. So it's just kind of a, a whole like thing. And this only exists with a number like a, it's a small number of trainers compared to like how many trainers there actually are. I've heard anywhere from like scouts from like eight to ten teams are the ones who are doing these deals. And there's like basically like a handful of trainers, like five trainers or so who deal this way. So it's a very small number, but it, it's trainers who are getting a lot of big players, hmm. like with big signing bonuses. Yeah. Well, on that discouraging note, I guess <laughs> <laughs> we, we can let you go. And uh, I'm sure we will have occasion to talk about this topic again. So thanks very much for coming on in the midst of this midweek madness. I really appreciate you, Ben and Meg. Thanks so much. All right, that will do it for today and for this week, and what a momentous week it was. So thanks to everyone for listening, and thanks again for sticking with us if you did during the lockout. Martin Perez signed with the Rangers after we recorded. Buster only says, according to an agent, that the market is zooming. So we have brighter days ahead. In another little CBA tidbit relevant to our discussion today, I saw Marley Rivera report. A great detail in the new CBA is that each team will make available English as a second language and Spanish as a second language courses at its expense, provided that at least one player on that club requests such a course on or before April 15th each year. So that's cool. Sounds like there's some discussion of potentially expanding rosters at the start of the season as well to address some of the concerns we mentioned last time about pitchers being behind in their preparations. Also, 
Some of you may have heard that in recent days there's been a bit of buzz about some senators who have brought up the idea of revoking MLB's antitrust exemption. Dick Durbin, Bernie Sanders almost certainly won't go anywhere. It comes up from time to time whenever MLB is making a mess of itself. But given the amount the league spends on lobbying, don't hold your breath. I did want to mention, though, that when Dick Durbin, the senator from Illinois, sent a tweet earlier this week about the lockout, kind of dovetailed with what I was saying last time about just the different way that this lockout was covered and perceived as far as which side was responsible. And this is just sort of your standard grandstanding cheap heat political tweet, probably. Not one that applied any real pressure that led to a deal. But Durbin said, message to the owners, unlock the lockout and play ball. So it did seem somewhat significant that that was specifically addressed to the owners. It wasn't, hey, you guys figure it out. Both sides get back on the field. It was message to the owners. And maybe this is partly just a function of the fact that this was a lockout and not a strike which made it more obvious which party the complaint should be directed toward. Anyway, Jerry DePoto is ready to transact, and we are ready to discuss transactions, so we will be back next week, presumably with some of those. In the meantime, you can support Effectively Wild by going to patreon.com slash effectivelywild, signing up for Patreon, pledging some monthly or yearly amount to help keep the podcast going and help us stay ad-free, and get yourself access to some perks including special monthly bonus pods and a Discord group that is open only to Patreon supporters, including the following five. Matt Gwynn, Mark Martella, Robert Amon Steimel, Trevor Nunez, and Megan Schink. Thanks to all of you. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash Effectively Wild. You can rate, review, and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and Spotify and other podcast platforms. Please keep your questions and comments for me and Meg coming via email at podcast.fangraphs.com or via the Patreon messaging system if you are a supporter. You can follow Effectively Wild on Twitter at EWPod. Thanks to Dylan Higgins for his editing and production assistance. And you can find the Effectively Wild subreddit at r slash Effectively Wild. One other programming note, as some of you may have seen on Twitter this week, the Ringer baseball feed has been discontinued. So there will be no more Ringer MLB show. There will be no more baseball barbecue. So I'm sorry that I won't be podcasting about baseball regularly over at the Ringer with Michael Bauman and Zach Cram and Bobby Wagner. It wasn't our decision, as you might imagine. And for those of you who have listened to both shows, I thank you for that. You will still obviously find me talking about baseball all the time here. So at least I have that platform and I am very grateful for it. And I have it because of the fine folks at Fangraphs, but primarily because of the listeners and the Patreon supporters who enable us to keep doing this however and whenever and as often as we want. And that is a great pleasure and luxury that I am very appreciative of. And hopefully the podcast listening community will survive having to hear me a mere three times per week talking about baseball as opposed to four. Thanks again. We hope you have a wonderful weekend and we will be back to talk to you early next week. Oh, 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 oh,